Our data suggests that, you know, in the 1900s, when agriculture was at its, its peak in terms of its extent, bees were still thriving. They were still in the landscape. They were still able to do well for the most part. What we seem to have lost in our last 100 and so years is the diversity of that agriculture. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. My name is Claudia Gratton, and I'm on the faculty in the entomology department at the University of Wisconsin. And my group and I have been studying insects, the ones we call beneficial, pollinators like bumblebees, predators like lady beetles, and insects we call pests like aphids that feed on our crops, and how our agriculturally managed landscapes influence their ability to persist, how do they make a living, and how we can benefit from this free service that nature provides, at least if you're talking about the beneficial ones. Last week, we published a scientific study that looked at bumblebees in our agricultural landscapes. As you may have heard or read about, bees have been in the news a lot lately, and so have insects in general, mostly because some groups of them seem to be in decline. There are several reasons proposed for this, but one reason seems to have to do with agriculture. Agricultural landscapes are hard places to make a living for some of these insects. Today, I caught up with Dr. Jeremy Hamburger, a former student in our group who led this study, to talk about our work and some of the surprising findings about how agriculture influences bumblebees and what we can learn from this to better conserve our beneficial insects. Jeremy is now a postdoctoral researcher at the University of California, Davis, where he's continuing his work on bumblebees. Jeremy, it's good to see you again. You too. We're coming off of an exciting week for the two of us. We have a paper that just came out that we want people to learn about, and it has to do with bumblebees and agriculture and understanding how agriculture can influence their distribution in the environment. But before we get into that, I just wanted to ask you a little bit, you know, how did, how do we even get here? What, tell me a little bit of maybe about your thesis and how that kind of spun off into this particular work for this uh, study. Sure. Yeah. So my thesis work was, was really centered on understanding how, how changes in flower abundance over time and over in space would have, would influence pollinators. So Bees only eat pollen and nectar from flowers, so having flowers available in the broader landscape where they go get their food is is really important. They move. They move. They're like they fly around and exactly. they look for food. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. They've got to find food, and they're they're based in a little tiny nest. So the amount of food that's around their nest is really important. And I started answering some of these questions early on in my thesis, and more of a contemporary setting by doing experiments to try to understand how the abundance of flowers in the surrounding landscape would impact bees how the variability over time, so whether or not there's you know, flowers constantly available or whether there's these big pulses from like a big crop coming into bloom like an orchard and how that would impact bees. And we know that the way that we, that we shape our landscapes, that we, that we design them through agriculture and through planning can impact this, right? We can, we can change the environment in such a way that may benefit some insects. It might, it might be bad for some. And trying to understand that in a historical context is, is pretty difficult, right? We can't do an experiment back in time. We can't go back and say, well, what is, what is flower abundance like back in 1900? We can't really do that. We can use some data maybe that we can find and try to develop an understanding of how that's shifted. So as I was doing these experiments, I was trying to think in the back of my head, well, how can we actually see if these patterns exist through a longer time span back into 
you know, pre-agriculture days, 1850s, 1900 and that. So that's kind of what spurred this work. So one of the general ideas is that some of the challenges that bees and a lot of insects are facing in the landscapes today is that there just isn't enough food for them. So tell me a little bit more about that. Like we pollen, pollinators are in the news uh, a lot these days. Uh, in fact, it's pollinator week uh, this is. week as we're recording this. How did this whole concern about bees start? And what are some of the hypotheses, ideas that people have about why bees are declining? It's, and is that true? Are bees declining? It is. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And it's something that I get asked all the time. And the, the short answer is, yes, bees are declining. But it depends on what bee. A lot of times when you read popular media articles, they're talking primarily about honeybees. And the concern about honeybees is there's some valid concern for it, but the the making of honeybees as this poster child for, for bee conservation is a little bit misplaced. It's like if you had an endangered bird focusing on chickens. It's kind of the analogy, right? Honeybees are more of a, they're a managed species. They're, they're akin to livestock. We, we ship them all over the country to do this service for us. But people ask me all the time, like, well, okay, well, if, if bees are declining, why? And the short answer is there's not a simple answer. And, and unfortunately in science, there, there rarely is a simple one, you know, one, one focal cause for any phenomenon that we observe. And it's a combination. It's, we've changed our landscape so much over time we have reduced the amount of flowers by supplanting natural grasslands and prairies and woodlands with corn and soybeans, which feed us. They're, they work really well for us, but not so well for the insects that need to survive in these habitats. And associated with that, we have the use of agricultural chemicals, so pesticides and herbicides that either directly can harm bees or indirectly harm them by taking away the flowers that they need. And then we also have things like novel pathogens and parasites that can be transmitted from honeybees or from other wild bees that have really become a huge problem in the last uh, 20 or 30 years or so. And then the elephant in the room kind of linking all these things together and exacerbating a lot of it is climate change, which is still a relatively new frontier in, in the bee, uh, bee ecology world. Right. And so, so you're, you were kind of faced with trying to disentangle uh, a, few of these, uh, a few of these things, and you decided to work on bumblebees. So tell me a little bit about that. How, what was your approach to answering this question of how does agriculture and how does the availability of food, uh, mm -hmm. flowers for them, how does that affect a group like bumblebees? Why did you work on bumblebees, and how did you kind of try to tackle this question. Yeah, they are relatively abundant in these kind of citizen science style data sets that we can get from long periods of time and occurrence records from museums. There's a lot of bumblebee records there. So there's a lot of data we can use. And and bumblebees are, are kind of charismatic and therefore people collect them. Exactly. People exactly. see them, yep. they're, they're easy. They're big bees. They, yeah. They're out there in the landscape. People yeah. see them regularly. They like them. These are the furry, hairy ones. They're black and yellow. Yep. They've got bands on them. Like they're little like, flying teddy bears. Oh, they're they're just adorable. Yeah. Definitely. And and they're not that hard to identify, really. Yeah, exactly. Which is another important thing. And here in the Midwest, we have around about 20 species. So we're working with a smaller group of species that are easy to identify, we can verify the identity of the individuals really easily. And, and we can use bumblebees too as, as sort of a indicator for the rest of these species. They're, they have differences, but we would expect that if bumblebees are being influenced by some element of their environment, we would expect other bees that behave relatively similarly to also be affected by that. So food is a great example. 
If bumblebees are not doing well because there are fewer flowers, you would expect that smaller bees who also need those flowers are not going to do as well. Mm -hmm. So we use them as kind of an indicator species as well. Mm -hmm. So where did you get the data sets to actually explore the relationships between agriculture and bumblebees? Yeah, so there's a wonderful tool that a lot of ecologists and biologists use now called GBIF, the Global Biodiversity Information Facility. And they are a digital repository for all of these different records of everything you can think of, plants, animals, fungi, all of it. And we got all the bumblebee records that we could find for the states that we were interested in in the upper Midwest. So we're in Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, and Michigan. So we got all their records from there. And we also pulled some records from a modern citizen science program called Bumblebee Watch, where people submit photographs of bumblebees and they're identified by experts and verified so that we can use those. So between those two data sets, we were able to cobble together about 27,000 records from 1850 all the way till 2018, where we kind of made the cutoff in our data. Right. And so that's the bumblebee data. Yep. And then tell me about the, the agricultural data. Yeah. And this is, really the, this is really the exciting one. The bumblebee data is, is very exciting, but we've had that for a long time. It's just recently been digitized and, and made easily available. But for the longest time, we haven't been able to answer this question about how agriculture impacts bumblebees because we don't really know what ha what's happened with agriculture. We have an understanding from speaking with agriculturalists and farmers how things have changed over time, but those anecdotes don't give us numbers to actually tie to a phenomenon over time. So our co-author on this project, Mike Crossley, he had been working with this amazing data set of agricultural census data so every 10 years, the U.S. collects information from farmers the same way they collect information about their populace, what crops they're growing, how big their fields are, how many types of crops they're growing, are they putting pesticides on them, are they, do they have pasture, how many cattle do they have. There's this basically infinite number of variables that have been collected all the way from 1850 till today. And Mike was able to digitize a lot of these data and put together these broad patterns of how agriculture has changed over time. So how much has cropland changed over time, the amount of it in a given area? And these records are, are collated at the county level. So you're able to bring these two data sets together, bumblebees and the basically what was on the land yep. you know, from the late 1800s. And we know just kind of anecdotally that as uh, Western colonists moved into the lands uh, here in the Midwest that were occupied by indigenous populations, there was a forcing out of the local populations by violence a lot of times, by just land stealing, land grabbing, and there was a plowing up of the prairie. That's you know the story that we know of starting in the, the 1850s, yep, uh, really. Exactly. What was less clear to me, I know, going into this project was what, what happened after that? You know, mm -hmm. How fast did things change and what did agriculture really look like you know, over the decades after that? So tell me a little bit about that and, and really what some of your main findings uh, yeah. were. And I was surprised by that too. I, I had this kind of different idea of how agriculture had changed over time. I was expecting this relatively slow trickle after colonists took over land and it would peak maybe sometime in the 1950s. But we were surprised though that we saw this extremely rapid growth of agriculture and by 1900 actually, only you know 50 or 60 or so years after land had started being plowed up, agriculture was at its maximal extent in the Midwest. F roughly 40% of a county was in agriculture on average in this area by that point. 
And after that, it maintained pretty steadily how much how much cropland was there. So it was a big plow up that happened really quickly. Exactly. I mean, agriculture or the prairie, whatever was there before, forest was cut down and it really went into yep. to agricultural. Exactly. Yeah. And what surprised us about this is that associated with that, we did not see the a big shift in the number of bumblebee species that we found in these landscapes. We expected going into this that the amount of cropland in a given area would be the really important driver of how how many bees we would find there because you know you replace these prairies with soybeans and corn and whatever there's not a lot for them to eat there but surprisingly bumblebee diversity stayed pretty consistently high at the peak of this in the early 1900s and then moving forward into the mid-century right after world war ii what we saw is that cropland stayed about the same amount what really changed was the diversity of crops that were grown. So early on, people were planting all sorts of things. I was going to say tomatoes, not that. Potatoes, corn, soybeans, different types of pasture crops, clover, wheat fields, all sorts of things. And post-World War II and around 1940, 1950, the crop diversity began to just plummet. And fast forwarding to today, there's less than half of the number of things grown. And it's primarily corn and soybeans. As people, if you drive around in the Midwest, you see that. It's corn and soy everywhere. And that data is at a county level. You know, on individual farms, it's really pretty normal to have folks specialized on corn and soy, for example. It's very rare to have uh, a lot of diversity, even within a farm. Yep, exactly. Yeah, so what, what was surprising is that we, that's roundabout when we saw the biggest change in in bumblebee diversity is when that crop diversity started to to go down in the 1950s bumblebee diversity was almost perfectly correlated with that we saw a a really strong reduction in the number of species that we would find on average in a county and there was a little bit of a recovery after that but we lost you know 20 percent of the species from our landscapes we went from you know 20 species down to 15 or 14 at this time now. So a, a pretty big reduction. So when you say we lost them, have they gone extinct or are they just harder to find? In- yeah, it's hard to know for some species, but we, we, we find them very less frequently in the landscape. So the way that we did this, our sort of analysis, gives us a likelihood of a bee occurring in a given place in a given time. So we talk about that in terms of kind of a probability. So we're less likely to find a lot of these species now. Mm-hmm. So the diversity of crops that are in a county was a big factor in influencing the likelihood that we see bumblebee uh, species there. Are all species kind of reacting this way? Not, not, not necessarily, no. We see that a majority of the species do tend to be found at a higher uh, occurrence when crop diversity is high. But there are some species that just don't do well when there's agriculture. A great example is Bombus tericola, the uh, yellow-banded bumblebee. As agriculture increased, they're, they're really not too fond of that style of, of plow up. And talking to colleagues in the field who work with the species in the Northeast, they, they see a similar phenomenon when they go out and observe them in, in nature. They like these kind of wetland, woodland areas, and they're really not found in high abundance in these really intensively agricultural areas. Mm-hmm. Are there species that like agriculture? There certainly are, yeah. And this was a really big surprise moving into this is that we found there was kind of a dichotomy that a majority of the species tended to do poorly when there's a lot of agriculture. But there's this handful of species, four or five of them, that really seem to thrive under intensively agricultural conditions. And these, no surprise, are the ones that we find most commonly now. So we're thinking about like the common eastern bumblebee, two-spotted bumblebee, the brown-belted bumblebee, 
these have been found at a very, very increased rate in recent times associated with these really agricultural landscapes. So there's something about those landscapes that they're able to take advantage of. Most, and notwithstanding that, most species are positively influenced by diversity in a diversity of agriculture yep. in in a landscape yeah and so, e- even those species that we just talked about that are more common now in intensively agricultural conditions they're still even more common yet when it's diverse agriculture but the problem is that doesn't really exist in our landscapes now as you kind of discussed earlier it's very rare to find these pockets of areas that have a high diversity of agriculture and one that you and I both know well is Dane County, which has a relatively, still not compared to you know back in the 1900s, a relatively diverse set of crops. And as a result, we see a lot of different bumblebee species here, including rusty patch. Mm-hmm. Dane County here in South Central Wisconsin, obviously. What's the take-home message really for your particular study? So the take-home message is that agriculture is not necessarily inherently bad for bumblebees. We kind of entered this, or at least I entered this, with the understanding that we would really see most species negatively affected by agriculture, just given the extent and the intensity that we do it nowadays. But our data suggests that, you know, in the 1900s, when agriculture was at its its peak in terms of its extent, bees were still thriving. They were still in the landscape. They were st- still able to do well for the most part. So we were doing something differently in that part of the century exactly. in how we did agriculture that still was able to maintain bumblebee. Exactly, uh, right, exactly. And what we've what we seem to have lost in our in our last one hundred and so years is the diversity of that agriculture. We've lost a lot of different crops, fields have gotten larger, the inputs have gotten more intense, so we take away flowering weeds with herbicides, and we've industrialized really. We've we've really made a perf- perfect agricultural system in terms of maximizing productivity. Mm-hmm. But with that has come a cost and that these organisms that depended on this kind of heterogeneous, a little bit messier system really have suffered as a result. Right. And so that's actually one of the challenges that, that we faced in trying to really interpret these results. One of the things we were able to do is disentangle the area of agriculture with the diversity of the agriculture that's actually being practiced. But it's, as you just said, there's all these things that are changing simultaneously with the loss of crop diversity. The fields are getting bigger. We're seeing, you know, the use of herbicides and insecticides. So it's almost like there's this syndrome of intensified agriculture that is correlated with loss of diversity that happens simultaneously. Yep, exactly. We lose the ability too of this time, right? That's the really novel aspect of, I think, the work we've done here is that we're able to show this change over a very long period of time, over basically the entirety of of modern agriculture in the Midwest. And doing experiments that last that long is clearly not possible, so. Right. Let's fast forward a little bit. You know, if you could paint the landscape in some other way with agriculture still as part of it, because we, this is still something that we do, what, what would, what would it look like? That's a great question. And it's, it's, it sounds, it's difficult to answer. No, it's not difficult to answer. It's hard to answer. How do I want to say this? I want to be careful not to, to point fingers at agriculture as, as necessarily a bad thing. Obviously, we have to eat. Agriculture is what feeds us. And I think that we need to just change how, we, how these systems work a little bit and to think about the things that used to work 
for both bumblebees and for people to see if we can bring back some of those elements. Diversifying our landscapes with more crop types would be a start. Maybe reducing field sizes, which in other work has been shown to benefit not just bees, but biodiversity in the landscape generally. And that would, I think, have a huge benefit, not only for the animals and the plants and stuff that we care about, but might also be beneficial for farmers who are oftentimes kind of stuck in these systems of, of corn and soy that aren't always the most profitable, that have challenges with dealing with, and might give them better access to different markets if they can diversify the things that they're selling and provide a little bit more resilience. You could think of it like a stock portfolio. You might make a lot of money, potentially, or be really successful off of two types of stocks. But in the event that one of those goes away, you're left with not much. But if you've diversified your portfolio, if you're resilient to these shifts that might occur, you're more likely to be successful. Very well said. And so really that sort of speaks to the incentives and the financial systems and the markets that really support this efficiency-oriented agriculture. I mean, we've we've pushed our agriculture because of the economic uh, systems and the price supports that are out there into one that is all about production. It's all about how do we get the most biomass, the most bushels per mm-hmm. acre. That has been the, the dominant paradigm. Yep. And in the process of doing that, we've lost some things. We've lost uh, our ability to support things like bumblebees. And we've also lost our ability to hold on to our soils. And you know, our waterways are increasingly polluted. And yep. people can't swim in the lakes in the uh, Madison area during the summer because of the agricultural runoff. So, you know, thinking about ways in which we can get the, the benefits of agriculture for production as well as for the environmental outcomes that it can provide, I think is going to be a new frontier. And uh, learn, learning from the past, I think, is a really great place to start. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so from this work, what would you say are still some unanswered questions? What's, what's your next step? What would you do next? So yeah, like, like we talked about a little bit earlier, trying to parse out which of these factors is really the most important. So we have all these different correlated drivers that we associate with the amount of agriculture or the diversity of crops. And I'd love to start figuring out experimentally which one of these are really are really going on and and some of my other thesis work has has kind of gotten at this working with just one species of bumblebee as an indicator to try to do that so i'm working with that and then i'd also like to broaden this out and i'd like to think about insects generally not just the single group of pollinators that we've been working with bumblebees but how it impacts other beneficial insects things like natural enemies, so lady beetles and lacewing, and maybe how it also impacts things like crop pests, because we might expect that they're responding in maybe the opposite way to our beneficial insects, because there's these huge fields of tasty, super luscious vegetation for them to feed on. We might see totally different responses. You know, understanding how this this broader set of insects responds, I think, would be really interesting. Right, yeah. I mean, if you've got all that corn in front of you, it's nice to be a corn-feeding insect. Exactly. We hope that you've enjoyed learning about agriculture and biodiversity and how they intersect in our landscapes. If you want to see some photos of the wonderful creatures that we share our landscapes with, make sure you navigate over to our website, grasslandag.org 
and search for the stories and podcast section. There you'll also find some amazing artwork from Liz Kozik, who illustrated the main findings of the study. And if you want to read the full paper, send us an email at uh, cgraton at wisc.edu. And you can chase us down at any of our social media links, including at GratonLab and at jh underscore wisc on Twitter. Hope to see you online. And until next time, thanks.